Hello, and welcome to the Breathe Easy Pediatrics Podcast. My name is Ryan Thomas, and I'm a pediatric pulmonologist and director of the Cystic Fibrosis Center at the Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. Today, I bring you a conversation with Dr. Miles Weinberger. Dr. Weinberger is an emeritus professor of pediatrics from the University of Iowa and currently a visiting professor of pediatrics at the University of California, San Diego. He is board certified in both allergy and pediatric pulmonology. Dr. Weinberger is a world-renowned expert on functional respiratory disorders with a specific interest in habit cough syndrome and vocal cord dysfunction. On this podcast, we discuss vocal cord dysfunction, including the differential diagnosis, key historical features, cardiopulmonary exercise testing, and different management options. Good afternoon. I'd like to welcome to the podcast Dr. Miles Weinberger. Thank you for speaking with us today. Uh, You're welcome. It's my pleasure. All right. So topic of today's podcast is vocal cord dysfunction. I think in the pediatric pulmonary community, we see a fair amount of this, but most of the time they don't come walking into the door saying, I have vocal cord dysfunction. So one of the more typical referrals a pediatric pulmonologist will get is for dyspnea on exertion. And my question is, when thinking about dyspnea on exertion, what is sort of a brief differential of the things you see commonly The most common cause of dyspnea on exertion, of course, is asthma, but not many of those get referred because generally there are other symptoms and signs of asthma, and the referring physician has already tried albuterol before the exercise, and if if the exercise-induced dyspnea is blocked with albuterol, that's sufficient to confirm asthma, and you don't need further evaluation. So essentially, the referrals to a specialist are most likely to be those that don't fit the pattern of asthma. And to ensure that, it just takes a little bit of history. If someone has exercise-induced dyspnea and has no other symptoms consistent with asthma, then it's highly unlikely that the exercise-induced dyspnea is due to asthma. That's the first thing. I have seen patients, for instance, where they don't respond adequately to uh, a bronchodilator and someone puts them on inhaled steroids and adds other medication, and it's the old principle of not beating a dead horse. In other words, failure to respond to a bronchodilator used before exercise is sufficient to either consider or rule out asthma. So most of those cases that are referred then don't have asthma, or it takes very little effort to confirm that they don't have asthma. So the next question is how to evaluate what is the cause. It is not sufficient to just demonstrate with an exercise test that they don't have asthma because that doesn't diagnose what they have. It only diagnoses what they don't have. And what the patient wants to know is why do they get, from their point of view, excessively short of breath on exercise. So really what has to be done is not just an ordinary treadmill exercise test and examination for bronchospasm, but one must do full cardiopulmonary recording during the exercise to determine oxygen utilization, carbon dioxide production with an electrocardiogram monitoring and also monitoring flow volume loops continuously during the exercise and reproducing the symptoms, pushing the exercise level enough to reproduce the symptoms. 
So what is important is to avoid using some standard protocol for the treadmill exercise. And also some people like to use a bicycle, and that's fine if someone is a competitive bicyclist. But if what they're doing is basketball, soccer, track, something else that involves running, then you want to use the type of exercise that they're used to doing where the, in order to reproduce the symptoms and use a treadmill and push the limits of the treadmill to the point where you reproduce the symptoms. And then you can examine what is the physiology associated with the exercise-induced dyspnea. If you don't re reproduce the dyspnea, you're not going to get an answer to the question. And so what we would do is we would set the speed of the treadmill at a level that they were comfortable doing and then create the stress by progressively increasing the ramp to the point where the symptoms were reproduced. And so then we look at the flow volume loop. Are we seeing a uh, decrease in inspiratory flow? a flattening of the inspiratory portion of the flow volume loop. So that's showing upper airway obstruction. And we want to look at the airway and see if that is due to vocal cord dysfunction, that is abduction of the vocal cords during inspiration, or is it due to laryngomalacia, the much less common cause, but with a very different mode of treatment. If there is no upper airway obstruction, then we want to see what's their level of conditioning, and we can get that information with the amount of oxygen utilization. The oxygen utilization is consistent, well, whatever it is, whether it's average conditioning, above average, or, or below average, is there a discrepancy between the um, carbon dioxide excretion and the oxygen utilization? We would routinely, at the end of the test, do a finger stick for blood gas, ideally it would be nice to have a catheter in an artery to monitor that even better, but that's a much less pleasant and more invasive procedure than just at the very end of the exercise before they rest, doing a finger stick to see just how acidotic they are and uh, with the capillary CO2 matches the uh, end tidal CO2 that we've been already monitoring continuously. So from that, we can see you know, what's the exercise physiology, what was going on, are they getting uh, tachypneic with decreasing the end tidal CO2 early, suggesting exercise-induced hyperventilation, and of course we do a spirometry at the end, and we can determine then whether it's exercise-induced asthma, exercise-induced vocal cord dysfunction, or uh, one of the others. And one thing I didn't mention that we've seen a couple cases of, and, and uh, one in the uh, series that we published, and that was uh, exercise-induced supraventricular tachycardia. We had a 16-year-old basketball player who we were told was sufficiently good that he could be uh, competitive for scholarships, but he couldn't last a quarter. And what we determined was when he exercised and we started getting near the point where he would be getting dyspneic, then all of a sudden his heart rate jumped up to over 200. And he did not feel 
not aware of the arrhythmia. He did not feel palpitations. He just felt dyspnea. When they let him rest for five or ten minutes, all of a sudden, it would the heart rate would drop down to a more normal range, consistent with supraventricular tachycardia. And this is recognized. There's literature on this. And these days, that is readily corrected by a pediatric electrophysiologist. We had one in Iowa. He fixed this uh, boy up, and he was then able to complete a quarter. Essentially, it eliminated his excessive exercise-induced dyspnea. One of the things you mentioned was getting the capillary blood gas to check the carbon dioxide level compared to the end tidal carbon dioxide level on exercise testing. If those are not sort of synced up with one another, how, how does that help you? They're not necessarily match, uh, but it's good enough. And so we've been monitoring the end tidal CO2. It's mo- that's most usefully useful for the trending. And then the capillary gas at the end gives us the best estimate of PCO2 at the end of the exercise. So are they, uh, particularly the pH is important because, which of course you don't get from the end tidal CO2. And we would see a lot of patients that would have exercise-induced dyspnea just from normal physiologic limitation. They would have a pH of 7.2 and sometimes even a bit lower. One of the other things that I've heard you mention in speaking in the past is that you really need to reproduce the symptoms and that if you see a drop in the FEV1, but the child isn't symptomatic, that you that you don't clearly have your answer about what's causing this. I was wondering if you could speak a little bit more about that. Yes, I think it's very important because you will see a decrease in the FEV1, in other words, some degree of exercise-induced bronchospasm can occur in the normal population. It's been described in patients with allergic rhinitis. Interestingly, it's been described in two studies in asymptomatic parents of asthmatic children. There's a study out of Omaha and another one that was Italian, and they both showed the same thing, that you could find parents who had modest amount of exercise-induced bronchospasm but had never had any signs of asthma and weren't having it at the time, parents of children who actually had asthma. And it was consistent with exercise-induced decrease in pulmonary function, that is airway reactivity, being perhaps a genetic dominant factor, something that is necessary to have asthma, but not necessarily a diagnosis of asthma by itself. That study's been done predominantly with methacholine bronchoprovocation, but again, a modest amount of exercise-induced bronchospasm can also be seen in some of those patients. But it's asymptomatic. So just showing some degree of exercise-induced bronchospasm at a time when they're not symptomatic. I mean, obviously, if the FEV1 drops 30 40%, they're going to be symptomatic. But if it drops 10 or 15%, they may very well not be symptomatic, and there may be something else going on that is causing the exercise-induced dyspnea. So when you have a child on the treadmill and he starts to have symptoms that are consistent with VCD, what do you tend to be seeing? Well, what you see is signs of upper airway obstruction, and that is if you're monitoring the flow volume loops, you'll see flattening of the inspiratory portion of the flow volume loop. Inspiratory flow is obstructed, so the 
inspiratory portion of the flow volume loop shows up. Instead of having the nice slow loop, it flattens out. And again, that doesn't tell you definitely that it's vocal cord dysfunction. It tells you there's something that's causing upper airway obstruction, but vocal cord dysfunction is far more common than exercise-induced laryngomalacia. But again, you have to look and see it happening. Sometimes that's hard to do. The one that we've demonstrated on our website, fortunately, uh, from the point of view of education, continued to have the symptoms for quite a few minutes after they stopped the exercise. So ideally, you'd like to see it happening, but sometimes it's so convincing that you know there's upper airway obstruction and that it's transient, and that most likely is going to be vocal cord dysfunction. Very often, we'll take a quick look, even if it's stopped. There are some people who have done um, continuous monitoring uh, with a uh, insertion of a flexible laryngoscope and having then continuous visually monitoring during the exercise. We haven't normally done that because doing that kind of is on the assumption that that's the primary thing you're going to see with exercise-induced dyspnea, but it's not. As I said, we had 15 out of uh, 120 sequential tests that had vocal cord dysfunction. But you do want to get a look at the vocal cords because even if they've stopped having the upper airway obstruction, you can generally distinguish if the situation for laryngeal uh, obstruction from uh, exercise-induced laryngomalacia, you can generally see if the, flop, if the vocal cords have excessively floppy arytenoids or an, an enlarged and floppy epiglottis by uh, looking even after it's stopped. So again, most of those cases with the upper airway obstruction will be vocal cord dysfunction, but it is good to take a look at those vocal cords and make sure you don't see the situation that would uh, be likely to produce uh, exercise-induced laryngomalacia. Ideally, it's nice to see it while they're still having the inspiratory strider. Sometimes it stops too quickly after the exercise is over. So once you make the diagnosis of vocal cord dysfunction, what are the different treatment options that you generally utilize? Well, the classical treatment for vocal cord dysfunction that a number of uh, investigators have promoted is speech therapy. Uh, a speech pathologist essentially teaching the patient how to take voluntary control of the vocal cords and stop them from adducting when they're trying to take a breath in. Uh, and that's very definitely most appropriate for patients with a spontaneous non-exercise induced vocal cord dysfunction. But for those that we've been talking about, whether it's exercise-induced dyspnea, I had the bias that it didn't seem practical to me for patients during the middle of a basketball game, a soccer game, or track to try and concentrate on breathing exercises while they're trying to use maximal effort. It just didn't seem practical to me. And so we found that there was evidence that interfering with vagal receptors could prevent the, the reflex vocal cord dysfunction that would occur from exercise. And so we gave a trial of using an atrovent inhaler, ipratropium, before, and we had what appeared to be a very high success rate. Now, this is not double-blind controlled studies by any means. This is just clinical observation 
but it's the best we have. And it's certainly easy enough to do. And uh, if there's a failure, you consider other uh, options. But we've had uh, almost uniform success in the trials when we've used it. And again, there is some rationale from the literature to back that up. One of them, for instance, is a study showing that vagal stimulation, which is something that's been used for certain types of seizure disorders, uh, a complication of vagal stimulation is vocal cord spasm. So that provides some supportive evidence. It would be ideal to do a controlled clinical trial, but it's not easy to get a number of these patients together at one time sufficient to do a controlled clinical trial. One of the things that I sort of thought of as you were talking about that is that most of our inhalers and and other respiratory medications are trying to maximize the deposition of the medication into the lower airways because classically we're treating asthma or something along those lines. For VCD, you really want to have sort of maximal medication deposition really in the upper airway. Do you have them use a spacer? Do you have them do any higher dosing than would generally be recommended? Or is it just sort of standard inhaler technique? You bring up a very good point there. You don't have to do the kind of things that are done to maximize the drug getting into the lower airways. You're not trying to get into the lower airways. So, no, we don't use a spacer. Just using it without a spacer generally allows to settle on the upper airway, and it's obviously not critical that they do it as properly as when they're using it for asthma, which they're not in this case. So um, other than that, we don't do anything special. We just don't emphasize the sort of training you would give if if they were using it for asthma. Is there anyone with any experience using long-acting anticholinergic agents? You know, something is a little bit more preventative, or is it all mostly with just the more shorter-acting petropium? Well, that's a good question. I've had no personal experience with them, but my colleague, Devang Doshi, who was the first author on our original publication, He's been in practice and associated with Beaumont Hospital in Michigan. He tells me that he has used the long-acting ones like teotropium for patients with spontaneous vocal cord dysfunction. And his impression is that it's been useful in preventing or decreasing the frequency of spontaneous vocal cord dysfunction. Uh, hasn't used it for exercise use because there's no point. You're not going to use a chronic preventative for someone who's going to be in gym or uh, taking part in an athletic event. I have enough respect for Dr. Doshi that I respect his observations, but again, I have had no personal experience using the long-acting ones for the patient with spontaneous VCD. So one of the questions I often get in clinic when I'm talking to these patients is, how long is this going to continue to be the problem, or what is the natural history of this? And I was wondering, um, what in your experience has been sort of the more traditional natural history for children with VCD? Okay, well, that's a good question, too, and we did look at that in our publication. We have a publication, The Natural History of VCD. There is a natural evolution of this where it seems to go away. Now, is that because they're doing less athletic activity. Uh, is it because it just goes away or they learn how to handle it? We did have uh, an occasional patient. I remember one who was continuing to have to use 
ipratropium before exercise. Several years later, we did a follow-up study where we contacted the patients up to several years after the original diagnosis. And so we did have a patient who found it continued to be of value to use the ipratropium and that they would have problems if they didn't. Others, both the spontaneous occurring and the exercise-induced, most of them seem to have it go away. Most athletes, if they're going to be successful, learn how to pace themselves and don't get into the situation of severe lactic acidosis causing uh, dyspnea, shortness of breath. So either that, that happens or maybe maturation in other ways changes it. Don't know, but we did find when we followed up years later, the situation had resolved. Well, I am very certain that most of the families and children out there dealing with this condition will be very happy to hear that. My my other thing that I think we a lot of time pulmonologists worry about is, well, what, what if this is something else? I mean, dyspnea and exertion can be sort of an early manifestation of so many different respiratory conditions. And what are some of the red flags we should think about on our history that would suggest that maybe this is something less benign than an exercise-induced bronchospasm or a vocal cord dysfunction? Full, full cardiopulmonary measurements during the exercise that I've described before and it's, it's in our publications. If you reproduce the symptoms, you can diagnose these. And one that I hadn't talked about, for instance, would be cardiac. There could obviously be cardiac causes. If it's something that hadn't been brought to anyone's attention before, that is diagnosable by looking at the differentiation between the oxygen utilization, carbon dioxide production, etc. But other questions you can ask someone, and you can ask the patient, is at the time that they're having shortness of breath, what are they feeling? And are they making any unusual noise? And of course, if they're having strider at that point, that's giving you pretty good evidence there is upper airway obstruction. But just hearing strider is not sufficient. I've seen several patients who can move enough air through a probably normal airway to make a strider a sound on inspiration. So unless you can demonstrate that the strider is associated with upper airway obstruction, the noise itself is certainly suspicious, but not diagnostic. Other things, can less common, does the patient with exercise have palpitations, which might make you think of exercise-induced supraventricular tachycardia, which we've seen a couple cases of in Iowa. So, you know, asking questions about what the patient is feeling at the time they're short of breath you know, is it just that they're feeling that they're not getting in enough air, but no abnormal noise or any other unusual feelings? Or for the rare patient with exercise-induced hyperventilation, are they having the symptoms associated with hyperventilation? That is starting to feel lightheaded, feeling tingling in their fingers and toes, even to the point maybe of having carpopedial spasm. We don't see that too much with exercise-induced hyperventilation. But certainly the spontaneous periods of acute dyspnea, you know, one wants to ask those questions to become suspicious of hyperventilation causing it. But you can get the hyperventilation just from exercise in some patients. Again, just to put things into perspective out of that, in that series of 120, we had only had one patient where they clearly were breathing at an inappropriately fast and deep rate, far beyond what, what, what the normal response would be 
and they would become hypocarbic, the PCO2 would go down, the pH would go up, and they would get some of the symptoms of having an elevated pH, the fingers and toes feeling numbness or tingling, sometimes around the mouth, and or reaching the point of carbapetal spasm. One of the things I wanted to follow up on was the protocol you use for your exercise testing. It sounds like there's not a strict protocol that you use, like a modified Bruce or something like that. It sounds like very much that you put them on a treadmill, get them a comfortable brace, and then sort of slowly increase the incline. How often do you increase the incline um, when you're doing these tests? Is it very quickly or is it sort of slowly over the course of many minutes? It's slowly over the course of many minutes. Every minute or so, we'd raise it a little bit and continue to do that until we've reproduced their symptoms. Some of these patients we had were very well-conditioned athletes, and you really have to uh, have the treadmill give them a good workout in order to reproduce it. And so on occasion, we would get the uh, incline up, and they were still doing fine. Well, then we might have to increase the rate a little more. But it's very important to reproduce the symptoms if you want to know what's happening physiologically at the time of the symptoms. That's the only way you're going to know. If you don't reproduce the symptoms, you're no better off than where you were at the beginning, having to go by guesswork and suggestion what the uh, symptoms sounded like. And that's generally not sufficient. For pulmonologists who may not have ready access to cardiopulmonary exercise testing, would it be reasonable to try empiric therapy with atrovent and see if it helps um, as, as a bridge to getting to a facility that has the testing available? Yes, but then, then we follow up. I remember one uh, boy, I think he was 12 or 13, who was involved in athletics. They called in first. They talked to the phone, and we weren't going to be able to see him for a few weeks, so we did have him try the atrovent beforehand. When he came in, he said, well, I don't need to do the exercise testing. I said, so well, this stops. I don't have the problem anymore. I just use the atrophant. So uh, you can, you know, from the history, maybe get a suggestion, especially if they had strider associated with their dyspnea. So if they're having inspiratory strider, again, that's not diagnostic, but it's highly suspicious. Most of the patients who are having strider associated with their dyspnea will have either vocal cord dysfunction or, again, a much smaller percentage having laryngomalacia. But again, we have seen an occasional patient who gets strider with everything totally normal. They're just breathing so fast, so much air moving through a normal airway that you hear some strider. So if you don't do the testing, you can't be absolutely certain, but uh, you can have a high index of suspicion that it's focal cord dysfunction if they have strider. And there is one variation of focal cord dysfunction that I just saw recently for the first time, but I knew it existed because there's one publication, it was describing uh, three types of vocal cord dysfunction, the classical inspiratory only portion from paradoxical vocal cord movement. But then he also described four patients with expiratory vocal cord dysfunction. And I just had a patient that a parent who had communicated with me by email describing her child, and she did a video of her child's symptoms, and watching it, I'm convinced uh, from the observation 
that it fits the clinical pattern of expiratory vocal cord dysfunction. That is, they're adducting the vocal cords during expiration, making a very strange sound. So it's very important to consider that certainly not all vocal cord dysfunction is the same, and they're induced by different things, exercise, and perhaps some sort of psychological stress we don't fully understand. So it's a complex pattern, as almost anything in medicine. Uh, the more you see something and the more you learn about it, the more complicated it gets. Well, that is certainly true in my experience as well. I would like to thank you very much for taking the time to speak with me today. Uh, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. This is a favorite topic of mine. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast. Again, my name is Dr. Ryan Thomas, and I can be found on Twitter at MSU Peds Palm. For more about Dr. Miles Weinberger and vocal cord dysfunction, please visit his website at www.milesweinberger.com. It contains a plethora of resources about vocal cord dysfunction and other respiratory disorders, both for healthcare providers and for patients and families, including some really interesting videos displaying vocal cord dysfunction in action.